Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Let's, uh, let's look at the Word of God this morning. As we dive into the message, we're in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4. We're going to actually kind of crack into Ephesians chapter 5 a little bit this morning, too, as we finish up our series entitled United. We've been looking at the subject of reconciliation from the Word of God. And uh, so as we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 25, reading through chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, Therefore, and again, we know that when we see that word therefore, we have to ask that critical, that critical theological question. What is therefore, therefore, right? So it says, therefore, it's actually continuing the thought that was said before. Therefore, or because of this, put away lying and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Now that's, that's a difficult task. We're going to spend some time on that one in a minute. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone who is in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, because you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Jesus Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and a fragrant offering to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that we are able to gather uh, together um, in the presence of one another and in your presence to lift up holy hands, to worship you, and to thank you and to praise you because you are our way maker. You're the promise keeper. You're the one who restores our path, restores our life. And Lord, you are good as we sang about just a moment ago. And I pray that that would be the cry of our heart, that you are the king of our hearts. As we've been in this study for the past five weeks, as we've been looking in the book of Ephesians, that's really what it boils down to, is how much of us are we going to let you have? And Lord, we are happiest and we are best fulfilled when you have filled us up. And so I pray this morning that as we close this series out, Holy Spirit, you would be the speaker, you would be the preacher and the teacher, and that you would guide us into truth, and that you would show us uh, where we need to come alongside of you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make our spirits moldable in your hand, and I pray this morning that you would teach us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and God's church said, amen. Um, as we've been um, in this, basically in the book of Ephesians, since we've returned to in-person worship back at the beginning of June, we've been looking really only at two chapters. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter two, which gave us kind of the theological understanding of what reconciliation looks like in the eyes of God. That we must first of all be reconciled to Christ, uh, or reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that we are at enmity with God through our sin, and that God sent Jesus so that we could be brought back into harmony with him. And then we saw uh, later on in Ephesians chapter 2, the theological understanding that once we're reconciled to God, he then begins to do the work of reconciling us to one another. That we are brought into this family, that we are saved and we are born again into this new family, this new kingdom uh, called Christianity or called the kingdom of God. And he doesn't just want us to be a bunch of individuals, individuals serving God. He wants us to be a body that serves him to glorify him 
um, in the world around us. And so we've looked, at, we've looked at those things, but the word reconciliation or the idea, the, the, the title reconciliation has been something that's been front and center in our culture for, uh, for over a month now, ever since back on Memorial Day weekend when, when George Floyd died at the hands of the police officer in Minnesota. Um, it seems like everything has just kind of, the lid has just kind of come off our uh, humanity in, in some ways. Media, social media, everything, everyone has an opinion, everyone has an idea on how we can fix this and how we can fill the, if, uh, fix the ills of our society. And what we have to understand is injustice still rules the day. It still rules the day. It's not something that can be swept under the rug and pushed down the road. Someone at some point, some generation is going to have to stand up and say, no more. We have to address these issues. And here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ is the best equipped to be those people to stand up and say, this injustice has to stop. Why? Because we have the tool and we have the healing balm of the gospel. But it's been front and center and it seems like that's all people can talk about. Protests and, and, and pandemics and face masks and all of those things. And you may be thinking, man, it's like, it's like, can we talk about anything else? I'll be glad, and a lot of you may be thinking, I'll be glad when all of this is over with so that I can get back to life as normal. But the thing is, is we hopefully are moving into a new normal where we can address some of those things. And I believe as the church, we're not, I'm not talking about being an activist, I'm talking about being an evangelist, sharing the gospel that sheds light upon these things that sin has broken. And that's what we've been looking at and talking about for the past five weeks, really. And you're probably thinking, man, I really appreciate coming to church and having to hear about the same thing that's bringing me down when I, every time I turn on my computer, every time I turn on the news. But the truth is, that as the salt and light in the world, if we never engage with the world, how will we ever say that we've done the job that God called us and saved us to do? You see, if all we ever do is spend time with one another inside these walls and we never engage outside the walls, how can we ever complain or say we're truly brokenhearted over the state of our world if we never try to influence it with the gospel of Christ? So you may be thinking, I'll be so glad when everyone moves on to something else and we begin to get mad at other things, like the, the lesser things. When we can start getting mad again at, at, at the Louisville Cardinals, you know, when it goes back to that, you know, we get, can, we, can we bring sports back so I can just get mad at my rival or something like that? You may even be sitting there thinking, I'll be glad when this series is over so we can move on to something else because I want to come to church and kind of decompress from some of those things. Well, today we're going to wrap up this series on reconciliation, but we have to understand that just because a sermon or series on, of sermons may wrap up on a subject doesn't mean that the subject has been completely handled because this is something that has to be handled every single day. These last five weeks are really just the beginning of the matter. Because we have to operate with the understanding that reconciliation is a continuing mission of the church. It's not just something we address and say, okay, we got that fixed and let's go on because it's a continuing mission of the church because as long as sin and its effects, and remember what we've learned through this, sin separates, right? Sin brings division. Sin brings judgment. And sin, so sin is the root of racism. Sin is the root of hate. Sin is the root of division and all of those things that we see happen within our society and our culture today. Sin is the root of all those things. So as long as sin exists, the church will have reconciling work to do. As long as that's there, this, the church will have reconciling work to do. I love what Dr. Tony Evans said in one of his devotionals that, uh, that he produced during this time. He said, biblical reconciliation may, define, may be defined as addressing the sin that caused the divide for the purpose of bonding together across racial lines based on a shared commitment to Jesus Christ with the goal of serving one another. 
And that's really the goal of the Christian life. What we are tempted to do many times is look at, look at everything and look at everything that we can amass in life and say, life is about me, life is about making me comfortable, getting everything I need, but what we have to understand is the Christian life is not that way. The Christian life is about, I have been given more than I'll ever need in Christ, therefore I can share the rest of my life with others, and I can, I can sacrifice for others because God has got me. He's taking care of me. And so that causes us to hopefully reach across lines and reach across aisles and say, listen, we are all divided through sin, but at the cross we are brought together. At the cross, we are brought together as one. So in this series, we've been looking at the fact that reconciliation, whether it's racial or whether it's class reconciliation or whether it's a family trying to reconcile with one another after a season of distance, whatever reconciliation it is, is only going to be able to be accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only going to be able to be accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's through the gospel that we are reconciled to him that we're reconciled to one another. It's through the gospel that we're united as a body of believers toward the gospel mission. And it's through the gospel of Christ that we are equipped to live in a revolutionary way from the way the rest of the world operates. Now, I'm not trying to preach a sermon of church good, world bad. We know theologically that's probably the way it is. But we can't get hunkered down in, in so much and thinking, the only place that I am safe is in church because the truth is we're truly not even safe in church because when we, as long as we live in this world, we live in a culture of sin and death. But the church of Jesus Christ has something different with inside of it. And I'm speaking of the body of the church. We don't have to be fearful of all the things that we see around that everyone else is fearful of. If we're not going to stand confident in the gospel, who will? Who will? So we have to be equipped to live as gospel revolutionaries. And that's what we saw beginning in chapter four last week. And we're going to look at three more things this week. But last week, if you missed it last week, it was this, is that we overcome death in the flesh with life in Christ. See, the culture of sin and the culture of death, the culture of the, the, the flesh that we live in is one that leads to just more death. So the gospel revolutionizes this. It changes everything. It overcomes death in the flesh with life in Christ. It overcomes our old ways of sin and our old patterns with a new order in Jesus Christ. Where, everyone's, where, where the, the, the way of everything seems to go is hate and get ahead. Jesus says love and sacrifice. Love and give of yourself. And then we also looked at we have to overcome deception with the truth of Christ. And that was verse 25 which says put away lying and begin to speak the truth. And we know the truth is Christ. Because what we have to see and the lens that we have to view everything that we see in our world through is the fact that Satan right now is allowed, he's loose to kind of run around and wreak whatever havoc he wants to. And the havoc that he wreaks is through deception. Every one of us has fallen victim of it at one time or another. Every one of us. And he's not going to stop. He's just going to continue and continue and continue. And that's why in verse number 25, if you see and you circle these two words, therefore, putting away or put away, or toss away. Now in the original language, that is a continual tense, meaning it's not just put it away once and for all. It's put it away every day. That means every day you have to wake up, every moment you live your life realizing that you have to continue to put away this old way. Put it away. Yeah, how many of you have watched too much, too much TV, too many movies during all this COVID stuff? Like, 
you're binge watching on Netflix, is you, you, every one of you are liars. None of you are raising your hand. I'm hoping that we've got some truthful people out there on, on the live stream, okay? Because in here, everybody's a bunch of liars in this room. You've been watching more than you should, right? Okay, we're gonna have to do a sermon on that later on, okay? Put away lying is what we're saying, guys, all right? All right, so I know I have. Maybe I'm just wanting misery to love company, right? Okay, so we've been, you know, we've watched probably more than we should. Binge watching is kind of like a national pastime now, right? How many of you like to watch suspense thrillers? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's not like a horror movie or anything, but it's like there's a bad guy, and through the whole movie, they're, they're weaving this devious plot, you know? The best ones or the cheesiest ones are on the Lifetime Network. We've talked about the difference between Lifetime and Hallmark back in the Ruth series, but like on the Lifetime Network, there's always this like crazy ex-boyfriend that's like trying to weave some plot to get back at, to get back at, his, uh, at his former girlfriend or something, or there's this crazy ex-girlfriend that's mad that, you know, her boyfriend's moved on or whatever. And it always comes down in these suspense thrillers. It always comes down to the final showdown with good and evil, right? There's always the bad guy that's finally been like exposed for the bad guy he is, and he's running around, usually chasing him around, trying to either kidnap them or somebody's trying to escape being kidnapped. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's always that moment where the bad guy is finally, you know, like somebody finally picks up a shovel and slaps him in the face, or they run off a cliff that they didn't know was there, and there's that moment where you're like, oh, they're safe. But you've seen enough of those movies to know that they're not safe. What's going to happen? They're coming back. They could fall, they could fall off a 10-story ten ten cliff, and they're going to come back. They're going to jump the 10 stories up, and, and get, there's always, they always come back. There's always that final outburst of aggression. That's the idea that Paul has when he says, put away. It's, not, it's like you don't just put it away, and it's gone. You put it away, and it's going to keep on coming back. You have to be vigilant and understand it's going to keep creeping itself up. What that means for us as believers is that if you're a believer in Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he put sin and death down. He gave it its death blow. He smacked it in the face with a shovel. But the thing is, is that it's going to keep coming back with tempting us. One day he's going to set it right. One day sin is going to finally be destroyed and eliminated and it will never be there anymore. But until then, temptation is going to reign. And that's why we have to understand as we live in this culture of death, we have to intentionally put away that culture of death every moment, every chance that we have. As he says in verse number 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. It means that the devil is looking for the opportunities. Don't let him have it. Be on the lookout to put those opportunities away. So the best defense against the opportunities that Satan wants to take to tempt us to sin and divide us from God, divide us from one another, is the gospel that changes hearts. Because this is why I believe that we still see in our culture, we still see old hurt, we still see racism, we still see all of those things, even within maybe your interpersonal relationships with one another, past hurts and past problems, we keep bringing them back up to the surface. Because until there's heart change, it's going to continually begin to come up. You see, we can say, well, we've moved on. We've seen integration. We've seen, you know, slavery has ended. We've seen all of those things take place. So we should be moving on. But the hearts have never changed in a lot of people's minds. Now, in a lot of people's minds, they have, or in a lot of people's lives, they have, but in some, they haven't. Hearts have to change because it is a sin and heart issue. It's not a law and civic issue. It's a sin and heart issue. We can't just slap a law on a problem and say we're healed. We, we, we can't do that. 
Laws that reflect God's righteousness are good, and we need to move towards having more righteous laws, but that's never going to change a heart. Having good laws has never made people's hearts better. If that were the case, Israel would have always been a perfect nation. They would have never wandered from God. But what do we see in the Old Testament? God's people continually, continually, continually wandered from him, even though they had the perfect law in following God. They continually wandered away. The best defense and the best offense that we have is the gospel that changes hearts because laws never change hearts. The gospel has and the gospel does. So let's look at three more things this morning as we close out this series to tack on to those three other revolutionary truths that we looked at. Here's another revolutionary thing that we must do. To combat the sinful anger that prevails in the culture of death, we have to overcome it with radical forgiveness. We have to overcome sinful anger with a radical forgiveness. Look at verse number 26 again. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, the sun go down upon your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. So the first thing we have to see is that we have to learn to deal with our anger righteously. Did you notice when you look back at that text and when you look at what he says, he says, be angry and do not sin. It doesn't say do not be angry. You, you notice that? We talk about anger management. We talk about, you know, people shouldn't be angry. And I don't like being angry, but sometimes anger is one of those God-given things that we just can't avoid. And sometimes anger is a God-given thing that we have to engage in because there's some things that as, the, as followers of God should lead us to a righteous anger. But the, but, the, but the important thing to remember is it has to be a righteous anger. The way we respond to our anger is what he's talking about. He says, be angry. When anger comes, because it will, when, ang when things come to enrage us and make us angry, we have to respond in a righteous way. God models this for us. God gets angry. The Bible says so many times that God gets angry, but how did he respond in that anger? He responded with forgiveness and grace and mercy. Yes, is he a God of justice? Yes, but he also provided grace and mercy, and as the Bible says, a way of escape from that condemnation that we brought on ourselves. Jesus showed how to handle anger as well. When Jesus walked into the temple and he saw the money changers there and they were just, you know, they were kind of ripping people off and they had basically turned it into just like, you know, turn the house of God into something that it shouldn't have been. What did Jesus do? The Bible says he was angry and he walked away and he made a whip. So what have we learned from this lesson, folks? When we get angry, just walk away and fashion a weapon and then come back. Take a time, don't outburst. No, that's not exactly what he's saying there, but he took the moment to walk away and he came back and he acted in righteous ways toward in anger. You say, hold on, he acted in righteous ways by using a whip on people. Does that mean I can do that? No, that's a sermon for another time, okay? But the thing is, we have to react in righteous ways. We're told to be angry, but instructed to not react sinfully. And the sin that we usually fall into when anger is at play is vengeance. Vengeance is not, and this is the thing that we have to understand as a believer. As a believer is concerned, vengeance is not in our jurisdiction. It never falls under our jurisdiction. No matter what wrong may come to us, vengeance is God's. Look at what the book of Romans says. Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 19 says, Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Or vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, that is a quote from the Old Testament, which is interesting. In both Testaments, God makes sure for us to understand, whether we're following as Old Testament believers, or, or whether it's like us and following as New Testament believers, is to understand that vengeance is something that only falls under God's jurisdiction. 
that sets us up for our only option being forgiveness. And then placing that anger in God's hands and saying, Lord, please work in that person's heart and life. And we have to work on forgiveness. See, we're given some damaging outflows of anger. Here's some vengeful outflows of anger that we do. And it becomes a cycle. So what happens? Somebody does something, makes you mad, ticks you off, what do you want to do? Get them back, right? I'm going back. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them equally or I'm going to hurt them more. And then what happens to them in response? I'm going to do that again. And then what happens to you? I'm going to do that again. And it's this snowball of hatred and division and strife and hurt. And then one day it's just so big that that's the only thing you can see. Does that sound familiar? That cycle of I'm going to one-up, I'm going to continually try to get what's mine to try to make myself feel better. But it never ends up working. So we're told to be angry, but do not sin. And so we see some outflows. What do people want to do as they look in vengeance? Well, they turn, first of all, and, this is, and I don't know why Paul chose these two outflows. Maybe this was something that was going on specifically in Ephesus. But I think it speaks loudly to what we're seeing today in our culture. The first thing he says he resorts to is stealing. In verse number 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, let him do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone who is in need. See, one of the ways sometimes we try to right the wrong that's done to us is we want to make sure that the person who offended us pays. And if somebody's not going to make them pay, we're going to take it regardless. We see that happening a lot in the, with just what's been going on recently within our society, right? When the things happened with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and those injustices that took place, people did some, there was a group of people that did the lawful thing by going out and legally protesting, peacefully protesting. But alongside of that, there was another group that went out, began to riot and to loot and began to steal and began to damage property, hoping and saying this will make a statement or somehow pay back the wrongs that have been done. And my question for them often is, did it fix it? Did it fix it? Usually it doesn't. Did taking that TV or that pair of shoes or breaking that window or whatever, did it fix it? Did it make it all go away? And it doesn't. It may make it feel better for a little while, but it doesn't erase the wrongs that have happened. So he says, let them that stole don't steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. So instead of saying, I'm going to look for my recompense and I'm going to look for myself to be restored and that's going to make me feel better, what does he say? What's going to make it better is for you to turn around sacrificially and I'm going to do my honest work and I'm going to lavish help on people, those people who are in need. And I'll do honest work with my own hands so we have something to share with anyone in need. Because stealing, whether it be one person going out or whether it be a systemic thing or anything like that, it's always going to lead to damage. It's always going to lead to hurt. But you see, the Christian life is one of giving. It's not one of taking. It's one of giving. Because I've been given more than enough in grace. Therefore, I will give to others. You see, verse 28 of our text says, the mark of a believer is to do honest work for the sake of blessing those that are in need, not looking for payback and not keeping an account of wrongs but keeping an account of grace and opportunities to do that. The second outflow of anger. We say, well, I don't, I don't have a problem with stealing things. Let's talk about cursing. I'm not going to ask how many people said a four-letter word this week. Okay, because that's not, it goes a little deeper than even that. He says in verse number 29, look at this. No foul language should come from your mouth, 
but only do what is good for the building up of someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So a lot of time we react to our anger with damaging and destructive conversation and language, right? How many of you have ever said something in an argument or in a moment of anger that you wish you could have taken back? There are more words that I wish that I could have taken back in the scope of my marriage, my friendships, with my family, and I know that I'll never be able to take them back. And sometimes I wonder if it's been damage that has been irreparably done. Were it not for grace, the damage would probably be permanent. Were it not for the grace of, of those who forgave. And you've had the same thing happen. You've all had something said to you that has been damaging and cut you to the quick. And maybe you're still reeling from those scars. The only healing to that is forgiveness. It's the only thing that we can do. To live under those scars and that damage all the time, you can't continue to do that. You see, it doesn't just say, it says that we should not have foul language. Now, I believe, it's two, I believe this is a two-headed beast. Watch the four-letter words. Don't use that, that crass language. But it also has to do with cursing someone. It has to do with divisive language that doesn't, as it says, anything that comes from your mouth should be for the building up of someone in need. And also so that whoever hears it will hear the grace of God. Here's the question we have to ask as believers. Does my conversation and does the words that come from my mouth or the words that come from my thumb, are they leading a person and is it removing any mountain in the way of God's grace or is it producing a mountain in the way? We gotta be careful with that because we live in a world that, you know, you feel like you're doing a balancing act between, between spiritual and, and, you know, just the normal things. But that's the thing. We gotta stop isolating. Well, this is my spiritual side and then this is my, you know, real side. No, when we get saved, the spiritual side becomes the real us. All things are passed away and all things become new. This is what we have to ask ourselves. What I'm about to say or what am I about to convey is it going to place a mountain in the way of the gospel or is it clearing a path for the gospel? That's what we have to ask ourselves and that's what this verse is saying. So it means demeaning jokes, divisive statements, those types of things, are they necessarily good for building people up and clearing a path for the gospel? This is why I have a problem with putting labels on people. You know, back when, uh, back when I was a... Um, you know, working with childcare and working in, in, as a youth pastor, one of the training things was to say, don't ever just say that person's bad or look at them and say, man, you're bad today. Because that is ascribing an entire quality of the whole of their being instead of saying that was a bad decision, a bad choice. And this is what we have today. We have a lot of name calling and a lot of ascribing because of one act, ascribing the totality on them. Using languages well, like they're, they're jerks or they're, you know, they're thugs or they're awful, they're mean, they're terrible. We have to make sure that we divide people's actions from the image of God that they bear in spite of those actions. So we have to deal with our anger righteously. And that means be angry and sin not. Deal with our anger quickly. The Bible says don't let our sun go down upon our anger or upon our wrath. The longer we hold on to our anger, the longer it will fester and build up, right? Another youth pastoring story, man. It sounds like my best life was when I was a youth pastor, doesn't it? We went on a camping trip with the guys, and we, always, we did so many stupid experiments with a campfire, I can't even get into how many dumb things that we did. One of the things that we did is we were like, hey, you know, they always say contents under pressure will make things explode, you know, so let's put, let's put a six-pack of Coke in the fire. Let's do that. So like we did. We go to bed, and we're thinking, ah, nothing's going to happen. From about 2 a.m., you hear these loud bangs, and I'm like, oh, that's the Coke cans, all right. But then the weird thing is you hear this sizzling overhead. 
Like, what is that? It's the boiling molten Coca-Cola that has spewed all over the tent, burning holes through the tents. Because contents under pressure, they have to be released. Some of you, your personality, you're like a crockpot. You're gonna release that pressure little by little as you go on. But some of you, if you're like me, you're like a, you're like a pressure cooker. It's gonna build up and, and eventually you're gonna turn that release valve and it's gonna spew all over everybody else. And that's what our anger does. If we don't deal with it quickly, it's either going to build up in us to where we implode, and we've seen the evidence of people imploding with suicide on the rise and depression and all of those things, people withdrawing from everything. I'm green. I'm green. Don't worry about coming up here. It's fine. I just got to make sure I talk on this with the, so we pick up the live stream. Sorry for the live stream. We cut out there for a second. So we will explode all over other people and it will do damage to others. So the anger that we don't deal with properly then becomes somebody else's problem. So we also have to deal with our anger wisely. And it says this, don't give the devil an opportunity. And the only way not to give the devil an opportunity is to give it to God. When anger comes, the reason we got to get rid of it quickly is because if we don't, Satan will use it and we'll use it as an opportunity. The only remedy for destructive anger is radical forgiveness. Look at what Ephesians chapter 432 says. It says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So the measurement of our forgiveness is to be measured by the measure of forgiveness that Christ offered to us. That's how much forgiveness we have to give. How much did Christ forgive you? Well, that's how much forgiveness we have to offer to other people. The second thing we have to do, and I, I, I meant to spend a lot of time on point number one, two and three will be kind of as we close out, but overcome hatred with passion. Overcome hatred with our compassion. In verse number 31, we see the fruits of our hatred. He says this, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Now, over that laundry list and ask yourself and then think about your Facebook timeline and, and all that stuff and, and ask yourself how much bitterness and anger and wrath, how much shouting and slander, how much malice am I seeing in front of my face every day? It says let it all be put away from you with all malice. We have to learn how to deal with the hatred that we have and here's the thing. The only thing that we can do if you look closely at that text is it must be removed from us. I can't remove it from me. You can't remove it from you. The truth is the wrongs that have been done to you in the past, you can't go back and change. Even the person that wronged you can't go back and change it. The person that wronged you may not even be around to change it anymore. It has to be removed from you, from a third party. It's like if, if you go to the doctor and you hear that you have cancer, you can't remove it. You have to go to a surgeon and to a doctor who has to remove it from you. I'm thankful that the sin cancer that I had was removed from me by the surgeon, Jesus Christ. It has to be removed. The anger, the bitterness, the wrath, the shouting, all of those things within our society, within our hearts, has to be removed from Jesus. Removed by Jesus from us. So we have to learn to deal with our hatred, and the only way to do that is to hand it to God. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. The word compassionate is also translated as tenderhearted, meaning that there's a soft spot in my heart for other people. 
looking around today, it doesn't look like there's a soft spot much in people's hearts for other people. And I think, largely, that's just all propped up in front of us to make us think that that's all there is. But you walk around and you start showing kindness to others, be fat, it's amazing how fast it can be reciprocated. It's going to take a great deal of empathy for compassion to prevail. And it's going to take an effort to identify and try to understand where people are coming from. Not just say, well, I view the world through my lens. And everybody should view the world through my lens. Not everybody does. You see, because I've lived my life for 40 years every day. So I know my life. You've lived yours for as long as you've lived every day. No one knows your life like you and God. So if we're going to understand one another, we've got to start hearing each other's stories and listening to one another. And I love what Dr. Tony Evans said in his devotional. He said, reconciliation is all about relationships. To reconcile basically means to restore to friendship. The goal isn't just about repenting from the sin of racism, but it's geared towards developing authentic friendships with different races and cultures and people than our own. Once we repent from the sins of racism and division, we must develop relationships across those lines. Then in unity, we can serve our communities. The church is supposed to be the salt and light of our neighborhoods, regardless of the racial demographic or the social demographic. It's going to take individual one-on-one conversations and caring and involvement in people's lives, and that takes time. The quick way is to say, let's slap a law on something and say, nobody's allowed to do that anymore. But it's never going to change the heart. It's never going to change the heart of the one doing the wrong, and it's never going to change the heart of the one being wronged. And this doesn't mean patronizing, and it also doesn't mean compromising moral ground. It means just being involved in people's lives. You want to look for an example of that? Look to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus could have stayed in heaven with God the Father, and looked down and said, man, Adam and Eve really messed up, and they just keep finding new ways to mess up every single day. I really wish they'd get their act together, but that's not what they did. He could have sat up there with a chip on his shoulder that everybody sinned, but he didn't. He came and he gave himself. He walked for 33 years, lived among us, and the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, it says he knows us better than anyone else does, because he says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he's one who's been tempted every way that we are, yet he did it without sin. So he empathizes. He knows us because he was tempted just like we are. We have to. We can't just stay conglomerated in these, in these, in these little walls as a church and saying, aren't we good little boys and girls for Jesus? The church does no good if all it ever does is just live among the church. The salt has to leave the shaker to be salt and light. So we have to learn to overcome hatred with compassion. We have to learn to overcome ourselves as we close out this morning. Overcome yourself with Christ. Because more than likely, the biggest thing, the biggest problem, and the biggest mountain that stands in the way of seeing spiritual things take place is us. The biggest enemy to our spiritual development, to spiritual success, and seeing spiritual things take place will be our very own selves. Nothing will get in the way of reconciliation more than overemphasizing myself. You ever seen people come in and they have to sit down and try to come to terms and, and negotiate something or compromise over something, and neither one of them are going to give an inch because neither one of them are going to give anything of themselves to the other person? That's what sin leads to. 
overemphasizing of myself, what's in it for me, what's in it for me, and I'm giving nothing of myself. You see, making it all about you and only seeing or hearing through our own personal lens will never lead to where we need to go. This is why so much in Scripture is said about becoming Christ-like, overcoming ourself with Christ. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial, a sacrificial and a fragrant offering to God. Be an imitator of God. Be a mimicker of God. Like a child that looks up to his mom or a little girl who looks up, or like a boy who looks up to his dad or a little girl who looks up to, his, to her mom. You know, dad, uh, little boy wants to run around in dad's shoes, you know, and feel all big and stuff. And then the, the girl may try on mom's makeup or try on a dress or something to feel because they want to imitate. Then somewhere around 13 or 14, they're like, I want nothing more to do with my parents. You know, like where'd those little kids go? You know, the sweet little ones that wanted to imitate. But that's a complete microcosm of the Christian life, isn't it? There are seasons that we go through where as dearly loved children, we want to imitate Jesus. But then there are seasons where we think, you know what, I'm going to step out of your image because I don't feel like I'm getting the credit and the glory that I should get. And I want people to see more of me. The problem is people seeing more of Derek doesn't save anyone. Seeing Jesus is what saves people. The truth is I can't do a thing to reconcile someone to God, but I can share the message that does. I can't die on a cross to save anyone, but I can tell them about the one who did and can. We have to overcome ourselves with more of Jesus. We're told to live a life that is fueled by the love of Christ for others. He says, be imitators of God, and the very next statement is, and walk in love as Christ. The best way we imitate God is to love. And then it says, we imitate by sacrificing. He gave himself as a sacrificial offering to God. So as we close out this morning, if it helps you to just close your eyes and take these, I want to read several passages, several verses of Scripture. They're not going to be on the screen or anything. I just want you to hear the Word of God because Scripture says so much about us being formed in the image of God, about it being less about us and more about Jesus because this is how we close out. If we want to see reconciliation take place, then those who need to be reconciled don't need to see us. They need to see Him. And this is what it says, John 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. In Galatians 4, Paul said, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In Colossians, he said, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery. And the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this whole series we've been going through has been about reconciling to one another, but really what it comes down to is I'm reconciled to God when Jesus begins to live through me the most. See, the whole goal of following Jesus, being a Christian, is not so that you can just become a better version of yourself. Because a better version of myself doesn't, doesn't redeem anyone. But, a, but me living my life to be the best version of Christ that I can be will change the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I can't reconcile people to God, Jesus can. You can't reconcile people to one another, Jesus can. Reconciliation is only possible when we come to Christ. And so the question that we close out with this morning is, 
Are you reconciled to God? Have you been saved? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you come to that place where you realize, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness? Because you can try to overcome your sin with a bunch of good works. It's never going to make up for it. Just like enough vengeance is never going to make up for the anger that you have. You'll never do enough good to make up for the sin that we've committed. It has to be forgiven. It has to be removed by Jesus. Have you trusted him as your Savior? If you have, the question then is, how much of Jesus is living through you? And that's a choice we have to make. Will I let him be the lead? Will I let him take control? Or am I going to just kind of continually say, it's about me and I can fix this and I can do this. And if everybody would just listen to what I have to say, in my opinion, and look at it through my lens. No, humanity is restored through the lens of the gospel. You and I were restored through the gospel. The world will only be restored through the gospel. So as we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we go into this time of invitation and response, we've seen this one quality, this one truth through the entire series is that sin separates, but the gospel unites. Sin separates, but the gospel unites. And our job as the church is to be agents of reconciliation, to unite, to bring back into harmony. What has God been laying upon your heart to do, calling you to do? And the first step may be is to say, Lord, here's my heart. I open it up to you. Reveal what you want of me. Maybe your decision today is I don't know what to do, but I do know that I just want to do something. That's the first step. I'm just going to present myself as being open and start seeking for God to speak to me. If that's you, then make that decision today. Rededicate yourself to the fact that, God, I just want you to speak. My ears are open. The best of my ability, I just want you to show me. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. It's come today to be saved. If you're watching and you don't know Christ, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we come short of the glory of God. If you don't know Christ, ask him today, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And then we'll be reconciled with him to be reconciled to others. So as we pray and close out, we go to a time of response and invitation. If God has laid upon your heart to come for counseling with somebody or to just pray, whatever need, we, wanna, we never want to have a service. We don't give that opportunity. God, I pray that you'll move now in this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. we come to the conclusion of this week's message, we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the Word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylex.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.